Morning. You know, I was listening to the singing and thinking, goodness me, it must have been a long year. <laughs> Gosh. Well, isn't that a great reading? We weren't too sure how many uh, younger people were going to be here today, and uh, there are more than we thought, um, which is interesting. So it's really good to see how many people had a good Christmas. How many people didn't have a good Christmas? See, some of you just put your hands up, whatever I say, don't you? <laughs> oh, now, that reading is really scary, isn't it? It's about a really, really nasty king called Herod. And it's about some strangers who come from way, way away in the east. And they're strange people. They're called Magi. Sometimes we call them the wise men. It doesn't say how many there were. And they have come to say that there's a king coming to Israel, the king of the Jews. And what was, what was the reaction? What was the reaction? Put your hand up if you know what, what the response was. When people heard the news, how did they respond? Were they happy? Were they sad? Were they cross? How did they respond? <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, they, 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 weren't, they weren't happy. Nobody was happy who was uh, in the court. And, and then Herod sends the wise men, the major, to go to find out about Jesus and says, come back and tell me, because he wants to do nasty things. And then after that, Mary and Joseph and Jesus go off, and they go to another country. What's the other country? Egypt. Hmm. Anybody heard of Egypt before in the Bible? Egypt before in the Bible. Anybody heard about something really important that happened in Egypt in the Bible? What was it? <laughs> Moses in the bulrush rushes. And what happened in Egypt? Who was in Egypt? Yeah. Pharaoh was in Egypt. Who else? Excellent. Who else was in Egypt? Uh, yeah, before that, Joseph. At the time of Moses, who else was in Egypt? Israel. Were they having a good time? My goodness me. It has been a hard year, hasn't it? We're going to pray. Well, I'm going to pray, and I think you should pray as well. Gosh. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray now that you will help us to understand it, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please would you turn to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever had that experience of, this has happened to me before. Have you had that experience? It's called deja vu. I've experienced this before. It's a really strange experience, because it's kind of unnerving. It's the kind of thing that's a bit haunting, and it can lead you to think about that. I wonder, where did that come from? Was that to do with the dream that I had, or was it, did it actually happen? Anybody had that experience? Don't put your hands up. Don't worry. Most people have deja vu, because there, there are other experiences where you think, has this happened before? Like my experience of New Year's Eve. 
Because I get to New Year's Eve, and you know that there are people who have New Year's resolutions. When I get, and they're really excited about that. I know friends who love New Year's Eve because that's when they're going to make their New Year's resolutions for 2018. I am going to read 50 books in 2018. I don't respond like that. My response on New Year's Eve is to think about the 49 books out of the 50 that I didn't read. And so, for me, New Year's Eve is reflecting on the things that I didn't do that I wanted to do and the things that I did do that I really didn't want to do and thinking, same old, same old, same old, same old, same old. And New Year's Eve just every time. So I've stopped making New Year's resolutions. I still feel bad on New Year's Eve. Some people have that kind of reaction, but let me, let me tell you something else. There's another kind of reflection we can have on life, isn't there, where we look back over our life and we think, I, I just seem to keep going around in a circle. It's just endlessly repetitive. Nothing changes and everything changes, but actually, even though everything changes, nothing changes. It's still me. I'm still stuck. And that happens spiritually as well to so many of us. We find ourselves stuck in a rut spiritually. Sometimes we'll look at other people and see what seems to be the amazing things God is doing in their life and how excited they are about Jesus. And we look at our own life and we think, I just don't seem to be able to break out of this experience. We hear people talking about, I'm so filled with joy. I'm so filled with peace because I'm a follower of Jesus. And we think about our own life and we think, really? Really? You know, I, I, I used to think, I used to think that if I could just be more disciplined in my prayer life, and read the Bible more often and more regularly, and if I could be so much more vigorous at attacking things in my life that I knew shouldn't be there, and putting in the things that should be there, that my spiritual life would just take off. I'd be like those people I looked up to. I, I would move mountains by faith. I would trust God, and even though things wouldn't always go well, I would just be sailing through life because I had Jesus in my life, and I had a peace that passes understanding, and a joy that floods over. If I could just be better at doing those things that I knew I should do, and not doing the things that I knew I shouldn't do. Let me tell you, it never, ever worked. It never, ever worked. Because I would end up back at the same place. Deja vu. I think I'm not able to keep up this kind of thing. I'm just not disciplined enough. I'm not good enough at being vigorous about expunging, getting rid of the sin in my life and attacking those things that I find so easy to fall into. And so I would get to the bottom of the cycle, and it's deja vu, and I would think nothing ever changes. Here's the thing. I think that that kind of experience that's been my experience is fairly common. I think it's fairly common. 
we think that somehow if we could perform better as followers of Jesus Christ, then somehow God's favor would shine on us so much more brightly and our spiritual lives would take off. And in fact, our whole life would take off and we'd be sailing through life full of joy and peace and vitality and power. And we'd walk in a room and people would sense God's presence. If only we could try harder. I think that's a tendency for all of us. And so as we come to the end of 2018, I want you to ditch that in 2018. If that's anything like your default position, I want to encourage you to go back to what you know, which is that it has absolutely nothing to do with how well you perform. And if you want a convincing display of that, all you need to do is read the story of Old Testament Israel. Just recently, I've got to the end, amongst other things, of reading through the book of Chronicles, which is a chronicle of Israel's history. And it's like reading about deja vu. The people rebel against God, they fall into idolatry, they disobey, and God does something, and then they kind of pull themselves back a bit, and then it all happens again and again and again and again. And they never, ever break out of that cycle until it comes to catastrophe. And here, in Matthew chapter 2, in many ways is the absolute bottom of that. Why do I say that? Well, what's this about? Chapter 1 talks about the history of Israel. It starts with Abraham. And God's purpose, which is to bless the entire world through the descendants of Abraham. And Matthew kind of outlines that. He sketches us through these descendants of Abraham until he reaches the climax, which is Jesus. And Jesus is described in Matthew chapter 1 as God with us. Here is Jesus Born just the same way in so many ways that we are. But he's God with us. That is astonishing. But here's the reason why this is the low point for Israel's experience. Morally and spiritually and in fact in every way. You remember what the response was when the Magi, these strangers from the east, strange things are happening. This is beyond Israel. And these people come from the east because they've heard that there's a king, a new king, a new beginning for Israel. And they go to the palace and they go to Herod and they say, can you tell us about this new king? Because kings get born in palaces, don't they? Usually. Do you notice the response? The response is that everyone was disturbed. Did you notice that? In chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, When Herod heard this, he's disturbed. And the reason he's disturbed is because he doesn't want anybody who's possibly a threat to him being the king. And Herod was a thoroughly, thoroughly nasty piece of work. Somebody once said it was better to be Herod's dog than it was to be his son because he was very good at killing his family. 
But it doesn't just say that Herod was disturbed. It says all Jerusalem. That doesn't mean that every single person in Jerusalem knew about this. Most people would have no idea what was going on in the palace. What it means is this sense of being disturbed because there was a potential threat was pervasive. It was there in all the leaders, religious and secular. It wasn't just in Herod. Isn't that amazing? There in Jerusalem, God's city, the city of the king, and the king comes in the person of Jesus. God shows up, and they're disturbed by that. This privileged people where God has done so much in them and through them. They are the most special people on the earth. God has spoken to them. He's worked in their history. He's he's sent kings to them. He's delivered them. He's done all kinds of things. Nobody is more privileged than Old Testament Israel. And yet, when it comes to what should have been the climax of their history... And Jesus turns up, Emmanuel, God with us, they are disturbed. In fact, it gets worse than that, doesn't it? Because Herod sends the Magi and says, can you find this king for me? Because I would love to worship him myself. That's what he wants to do. And because the Magi go back another way, because the angel tells them not to go back to Herod, He decides that what he's going to do is see if he can deal with it anyway, and so he kills as many people in the area, as many boys in the area as he possibly can. Israel is really important to us for a number of reasons. One of them is because it shows us what we're like. Here are people who are so privileged in the way that God has dealt with them, and yet they're not able to deal with themselves not able to deal with the issue of their sin. Their religion doesn't work sufficiently for them. They can't undo the mess. So I just want you to be convinced if you want your spiritual life to thrive, you will not get it. That will not happen if you become more religious. It will not happen simply because you have a New Year's resolution that says, I'm going to pray more in 2018. Great thing to do, but that's not how you get there. Or I'll read my Bible more. Or I won't be embarrassed about talking to people about Jesus. It's not about what you do. So here are three things that I want to leave you with. And these are the three things. Number one. It's about what God does for you in Jesus, not about what you do. It's about what God does for you in Jesus, not what you do. You know that, don't you? But we forget it. And we think God will love me more and bless me more if I'm better. It's about what God does for us in Jesus. We cannot, cannot change things ourselves. In verse 15 of chapter 2, there's a quotation, out of Egypt I've called my son. It's a quotation from the Old Testament. The son there is Israel. 
And that quotation is about the Exodus. It's about Moses and the bulrushes and about the people of Israel being taken out of Egypt, the land of slavery, and eventually ending up in the promised land, in the land of Israel. And God describes Israel as my son. It's about the Exodus, God rescuing his people, turning them into a nation, taking them into the promised land. And the reality is that they have failed. Well, this is a new exodus. Jesus is the son who God calls out of Egypt because that's where the family have had to flee to because his people, God's son, Israel is God's son, have become so corrupt and broken that the son, Jesus, with his family, has to be sent to Egypt, the place of slavery, to get away from his own people because his people have become a land of the oppressed and the oppressors. And so God does a new thing. Out of Egypt, I've called my son, and this time it works. The son, Jesus, comes out of Egypt from the place of slavery to confront the oppressors and to release the oppressed, to deal with sin and death. That's how it works. It's gift. It's not about what we do for God. It's about what He has done for us. Israel couldn't do it, and if Israel couldn't do it, I guarantee you and I can't. So the starting point is to go back to that first principle. It's about what God's done for me in Jesus. And if you're anything like me, I keep forgetting that because I keep looking at my performance. It's about Jesus, and that is gift. Number two, this is for you, whoever you are. I, I, I still do this. I look at some people and I look at their spiritual lives, I look at their Christian experience and I'm in awe. Have you ever done that? They're so knowledgeable. They're so sharp about spiritual things. They seem to be so in tune with God. Holiness drips out of every pore. And so if I walk into the same room as them, I feel dirty. Have you had that experience? I can remember in Bible studies sometimes, and the Bible study was on Obadiah, which is Old Testament. I knew that, but I was too embarrassed to go through the index and look up Obadiah, and so I fluttered the pages for a while until I thought it was becoming embarrassed, embarrassing. And we'd have a Bible study on Obadiah, and I was in Zechariah. I don't know what I was doing in Zechariah, but I, I was. And I would, I would look at those people who just open their Bibles and say, Obadiah. <gasps> or I'd look at their spiritual lives, and I would be intimidated because I knew I wasn't like that. I didn't know my Bible as well as they did. I was embarrassed at times to speak about Jesus, not just because I didn't know what to say, because I wasn't sure what I would share from my experience. 
I wasn't sure my experience of Jesus was significant enough. That's a very different thing from not knowing what to say. I felt embarrassed because I felt that my spiritual life was so shallow. And I got to the stage where I thought, you know, I think there must be two levels of Christianity. There are the spiritual elite, and God seems to do amazing things through them, and I'm both inspired and also depressed when I hear them speaking, and I knew I wasn't that. Do you notice where this ends in chapter 2? The angel comes and he says to Joseph, I want you to take the family back to Israel because Herod's died. And Joseph doesn't go to Jerusalem. He goes north, and he goes to a place called Nazareth. Now, let me say, Nazareth has no historical or spiritual pedigree for the people of Israel. It it really doesn't. Jerusalem does. You read about Jerusalem in the Old Testament lots of times. All kinds of other places do. Even places like Samaria which was a fairly dodgy place at the best of times. But Nazareth doesn't figure anywhere. It is a no place in the spiritual history of Israel. But that's where Jesus the Messiah goes, and that's where he's brought up, and that's what he's known as. Jesus the Nazarene. I can relate to that. Not Jesus the academic, not Jesus the theologian, not Jesus who's able to find Obadiah without looking at the index. But Jesus the Nazarene. You see, he speaks my language. He knows what it is to live ordinary. He knows what it is to look up to the people in Jerusalem who flaunt their theological knowledge and so on. And here he is, Jesus, the Nazarene. I can relate to that. You see, this is for you. You may feel, I don't, I don't, I don't register on a scale of theological knowledge or of holiness or whatever it is. And, and you feel that this is not for you. It is for you. Because he's Jesus the Nazarene. He's one of us. God amongst us as one of us. It's for you. Lastly. Lastly. I don't mean this in a sexist way at all. I'm using this in a biblical sense. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a son. You're a son. It's not because sex, gender doesn't matter. Son is the relationship of privilege. Remember what it says, that quotation from Hosea, out of Egypt I've called my son. Initially that relates to Israel, but here specifically it relates to Jesus. But if you're a follower of Jesus, it relates to you. Because you are a son because you are in relationship to Jesus Christ. And he has brought you out of slavery, as illustrated by Egypt. 
made you his son, and set you free. And that means you're a son even when you don't read your Bible regularly. You are not less a son on those days where you have your Bible reading plan and you are way behind. You are not less of a son on those times when your prayer life is so embarrassing that you're tempted to lie about it. You are not less of a son on those times when you are disobedient and unfaithful. You are still a son. That's who you are. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. So live as a son. What have we got then? Three simple reminders. Very basics of what the Christian message is about. It's gift, not performance. It's what Jesus does. Number two, it's for you, whoever you are. However checkered your spiritual or moral experience has been. Are you a son? Always, always a son. So live that out. Live that out. Don't lapse into thinking that God will bless you more, that his smile will be more on you if you perform better. You're a son always. I want to suggest that we end with a time of quiet, time to pray. I want to encourage you maybe to do one of more of these three things. Number one is to say, Father, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. Because I realize in my life what I've done is lapsed back into performance and I, I'm living a Christian life where I'm so driven and, and I know I keep failing and I keep coming back to that point where I feel wretched. I am so sorry because it's not about that. It's about what Jesus has done for you. He sets you free. Number two, to give thanks. Give thanks that even though you may have sinned really badly over this last year, yes, come, come for repentance and so on, but you're still a son. He doesn't love you less because you sinned in, 19, in 2017. you got that? He does not love you less. There may be consequences of some of the things that we do. Gravity, for example, has a habit of working fairly universally. You do something stupid, you will fall down. But God doesn't love you less. If you've got that, and number three, it's for you. It's for you, whoever you are academic, theologian, minister, somebody who's new to Christian things, somebody who's really struggling. It's for you. And so, ask for forgiveness 
give thanks. And finally, ask. Say, Lord, I want to know you better this year. I want to experience more of you this year. I want my life to be more in tune with you this year. I want to know more of your love. Ask, because you're a son. You can ask. Because that's who you are. Let's be quiet, and then I'll finish with a prayer. Father, some of us, I think, may want to say this morning that we're sorry because we've lost sight of how much you love us. We're just so tempted to think that the intensity of your love is related to our level of obedience. Father, please set us free from that. Help us to realize that you love us in Christ. We are your sons. We have a right to call ourselves your sons because of Jesus. And Father, may that light a revolution for us in 2018. A revolution as a church community, a revolution as individuals. Father, please, Hear the cries of our hearts as you promised to do. In Jesus' name, amen.